Psalm 18. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I've been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, Lord, at the last of breath from your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to, his, to, to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this, but there are times when I read the Bible and I seem to have more questions at the end of reading the Bible passage than I did at the beginning. There are some Bible passages, dare I say, that leave me a little bit confused. And I have to say that Psalm 18 is one of those Bible passages. I've been reading it every morning this week when I woke up, and there are still parts that I feel a little bit confused about and I'm not quite sure why David is saying the things that he says. Now don't get me wrong there's lots in Psalm 18 that is actually crystal clear but I'm not sure what you thought when you heard the, the Bible passage read. So here are the questions that I've got when I read through this psalm. First one is this, David's view of his own righteousness. He seems to be suggesting that the only reason that God has rescued him is because he's so squeaky clean. 
that he's never done anything wrong. But the overwhelming message of the Bible is that we're only saved because God is gracious. We're not saved because of our righteousness, because of what we've done. In fact, Paul says to the Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Well, Psalm 18 sounds a little bit to me like David's boasting about his own righteousness. So what am I supposed to do with that? And here's my second question. How am I supposed to understand all of the violence that we read about in this passage? David talks about pursuing and crushing his enemies. I mean, I hear Jesus saying I'm supposed to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. But David seems to be perfectly comfortable with the idea of just destroying his enemies. How am I supposed to understand that? Well, there are bits we'll be looking at, but let's try some of the easier parts to start with. This is a psalm that has a pretty clear setting. You see it there, that little inscription just above verse number one, if you've got your Bible open in front of you. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. And then it goes on with the psalm. This psalm actually comes up twice in the Bible. It comes up here in the book of Psalms, but it also comes up in the book of 2 Samuel. And it comes up right towards the end of King David's life. See, this psalm isn't really talking about one incident where David got rescued. When you see what it says in 2 Samuel, it seems to be suggesting that it's a summary of his whole life. But the other thing that the psalm that does make it a little bit easier for us to understand is that the psalm has a very clear structure. Let me show you what the structure is. Uh, Bible commentators talk about a chiastic structure. Uh, A chi is a cross, the X letter in the Greek language. Uh, So it has that kind of a structure to it. There are the outside parts, the beginning and the end of the psalm, where David sings God's praises. Then there's the main part of the psalm where he talks about God's deliverance. And it actually happens in two different ways. Uh, First of all, it's from God's perspective how God has delivered him. But then down in the second part, it's about how David reflects on God, God delivering him and retelling that story. Um, The description of God rescuing him is all of the language that you see there in verse 7 about the trembling and shaking of the earth, foundations of the mountains shaking, smoke from God's nostrils, fire from his mouth, hailstone, lightning, thunder. It's a pretty incredible picture of a powerful God who's stepping in to rescue David. And it's the way that God gets represented in the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, I think sometimes we can end up having uh, too small a view of God. Um, there's the, and then the last part of the psalm is the significant principles that we're going to see in the middle. But sometimes when you read those passages about the incredible things that God has done, how awesome and powerful he is, we can kind of be a bit surprised by that because we have a view of God where he's kind of that old guy in the sky with, uh, with a grey beard Nice enough, but probably a little bit out of touch with what's happening down here on earth. I mean, that was the way Michelangelo painted him on the Sistine Chapel, wasn't it? I mean, you're not even sure whether or not God can quite reach over to where us human beings are. God seems kind of a little bit weak and a little bit out of touch. 
Or then you have uh, the version of God that we have on The Simpsons. Same grey beard, same old guy. Yes, he's big because he's God, but he seems to be a little bit out of touch with what's happening in Homer's world. But the God that we have is a faithful God who is powerful, a God who doesn't have to struggle, that he is perfectly in touch with what's happening in the world that we live in. We have to make sure that we don't try and create a God who's a little bit less than he is. Don't try to minimise God's power or authority. Don't try to drag him down to where we are. I mean, when you look at the language that's in there about the earth trembling and shaking, the foundations of the mountains shaking, smoke, fire, lightning, thunder... You see all of that and you realise that there's echoes from the pages of the Old Testament in there. Echoes about the earth shaking and trembling when the people were rescued from Egypt. Or the hailstones and the lightning and the thunder that we read about in this psalm. That sounds just like when the people were entering into the promised land and God giving them the land. See, David's actually remembering that God's been there all the way, not just through his life, He's been there right throughout the history of Israel, guiding and rescuing and protecting them. But the image that we, of rescue that we get in the psalm suddenly becomes very personal. If you have a look at verse number 18, look at what David says. After fire and thunder and earth shaking, it says this, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep water. And when you get to the second deliverance passage, we see it again from uh, David's perspective and the same thing, that he attributes God to being the one who's, who's rescued him and saved him. He doesn't want to boast about anything that he has done. So what do we do when we come to those middle bits, those significant principles, those bits in the middle of the psalm? Now, if the psalm was written by King David and if it was written towards the end of his life, Well, it would seem to me that what he says in verse 24 is a slight exaggeration. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Really? I mean, does he really want to play that card? This is the guy who committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is the guy who arranged for Bathsheba's husband to be killed in order to try and cover up his adultery. Does he really want to play the card of his own righteousness, of his own clean hands? But I think we have to be careful not to misunderstand what David's saying here. When we see the parallel verses to this section, it says this in verses Oh, if you have a look in your Bible, verse 25. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble and bring low those whose eyes are haughty. I think David's saying God is perfectly fair and just. When he judges. And remember, following on from David's adultery with Bathsheba, well, he did experience God's judgment. He felt the consequences of his sin. And I think the general principle being outlined here is true. Those 
who are faithful in their relationship with God, ultimately faithful in their relationship with God, God will be faithful to them. What David is expressing in verses 20 to 40, as his life is coming towards an end, is that he wants to go God's way. He wants to live a faithful and obedient life. Now, that just leaves me with one more kind of confusing thing, for, well, confusing for me anyway. Uh, what do we do with all of the violence that's talked about here? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we need to be clear about first. The first one is this. A large part of our discomfort with the violence that we see, not just here but in the Bible generally, is because we live in a society that's been profoundly shaped by Judeo-Christian influences. The laws that we have, the judicial system that we have, they're based on principles of justice and fairness, principles that are drawn from the pages of the Bible. That's what most certainly is the case. That, sorry, was most certainly not the case at the time of King David. David lived in a world where might is right. The one with the most powerful army is the one who rules the day. And part of God establishing his kingdom and establishing the society that he had was that justice and fairness would be a part of that, a concern for the defenceless and the outcast. God was establishing a kingdom where his people would be different from all of the other nations around them. But at the time of David, those other nations were very different to the values that God wanted to see. God's kingdom, the one that essentially began with King David, is really just a shadow of the kingdom that God was going to bring in with Jesus. A kingdom built on justice and humility and on loving your neighbour and on caring for the poor and the needy. But the world around David was one where might is right and winner takes all. And the most powerful person gets to decide what is right and wrong. David's kingdom was to be totally different to that. But more than that, the removal of the people from the land, when God ushers in his people into the land that he's giving them, here's what we read in the book of Deuteronomy. It says this, It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. God says that he's going to drive these enemies out because they are not living the values that God would want to see from his people. There's a sense in which David's battles are in fact God's judgment on those nations around them. This is what it says a little further on in Deuteronomy. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. People often balk at the idea of judgment and punishment today. They think it's a little unfair that God would judge people. What right does God have to do that? But let's keep a little bit of perspective here. This is God's world that we're living in. And those who are part of God's world are answerable to him for the way that they live their lives. 
If they reject God, if they choose to live in a way that's going to be offensive to God, then surely God's got the right to judge and to punish. I don't think anyone delights in the idea of judgment or punishment, but deep down, everybody wants justice. Everybody wants the scales to be balanced. And when we see evil and injustice in the world, we want to see it made right. Looking through the news just recently, that I wasn't aware of this, there's a war taking place at the moment between Ethiopia and Sudan, and Eritrea is caught up in that as well. In the last 12 months, somewhere between 20 and 50,000 innocent people have been murdered. That's a horrifying thought, isn't it? People who who had no part in this war, who wanted nothing to do with it, have been killed. I mean, tell me that you don't want to see justice in that situation. Or remember when those schoolgirls were kidnapped in Nigeria, 300 of them taken away from their school, taken away from their families. Tell me that you didn't want to see justice. Tell me that you didn't want things to work out the right way there. And when we hear about governments around the world being corrupt, the example of Zimbabwe is the one that's close to our heart, that government ministers disappear with millions of dollars, that Mugabe himself, they estimate that he probably got away with around $2 billion in a desperately poor country. We want to see justice. We long for it. We pray for it. That's what we're saying when we, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the wrongs of this world to be made right. We want to see those who perpetrate evil punished. But if you don't like the idea of judgment and punishment and rather would just see people forgiven, well, you're actually not alone in that either because that's God's overwhelming preference. This is what it says in 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some would understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that's what Jesus himself said, wasn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The God who will one day right the wrongs of this world, the God who will one day see justice come to this world, sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to enable us to be forgiven. Our God is a powerful God. And our God is a just God. And above all, our God is a loving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him.